Last Sunday, I preached on just uh, the very first verse of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And this Sunday, I'm going to be preaching on the very first 15 verses of Mark's gospel. So Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 15. But before we come to God's word, let's come before him in prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that in this moment, you would help me to glorify, magnify, and bring honor to your son, Jesus. I need the help of your Holy Spirit to do this. And so I pray for that help now. In Jesus' name, amen. If Mark chapter 1, verse 1 can be thought of as sort of the title or the thesis statement of Mark's gospel, then Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 15 can be thought of as the prologue to Mark's gospel. In verses 2 through 15 of Mark chapter 1, we find recorded for us a series of events that led up to the launch of Jesus's public ministry in the area of Galilee. In just these few verses, Mark records for us four compact stories, which lead up to a fifth story, which is the launch of Jesus's public ministry. So in just these verses, we actually have five little compact stories. From verse 2 to verse 3, Mark references the book of Isaiah, an Old Testament book that prophesies about an individual who will come into the world and prepare the way for the Lord. This prophecy is taken from chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah, which was just read for us by Tierra a moment ago. This Old Testament uh, reference forms the first story or the first sort of section of Mark's prologue. Then from verse 4 to verse 8, Mark tells us about John the Baptist an individual who fulfills the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. Mark references uh, the prophet Isaiah who talks about a voice crying out in the wilderness, and then immediately he switches scenes to John the Baptist, who is a voice crying out in the wilderness. Mark also tells us that John the Baptist spent his ministry baptizing people with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and preaching about an individual who would come after him. When John preached about this individual who would come after him, John was adamant that people understood that the person who came after him was much, much, much more important than he was. John, the point of John's ministry is that he's not the point, that someone else is the point. Look at the quote that Mark gives us from John the Baptist. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Then in verses 9 through 11, this important and significant individual who John is talking about enters the scene, namely Jesus Christ. Mark tells us that in the days of John, in the days that John is baptizing folks in the Jordan, Jesus appears and is baptized by John himself. And then we're told that the Spirit of God descends upon uh, Jesus like a dove and that the heavens are torn open and that God himself says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. After this great and momentous event, we are told in verses 12 and 13 that Jesus is driven out into the wilderness. He's driven out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, and he spends 40 days there, and he's threatened and attacked by Satan and the wild animals, but he's also ministered to by God's holy angels. And then finally, after this trial and temptation, after these four lead-up moments, Jesus emerges from the desert and begins his public ministry in in Galilee, proclaiming the message, uh, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. 
And so here we have five uh, compact little stories which talk about the lead-up and launch of Jesus' public ministry. And so I'll say it again. We can almost think of these verses as a prologue to Mark's gospel. They provide for us the backstory of Jesus' public ministry. These five moments give us context for what's going to happen in the rest of Mark's gospel. They give meaning to the rest of Mark's gospel. So I think it's fair to say that Mark wrote these five stories so that we would have some sense of who Jesus was before we followed him into his public ministry. If we look at these five stories, we can see that they are defined by a group of characteristic themes. As we go through these stories, I want to show you that they are defined by a series of seven characteristic themes. The stories are characterized by anticipation, preparation, proclamation, validation, revelation, inauguration, and exhortation. I thought that was kind of clever. <laughs> and so first we, have, first we have anticipation. Particularly in verses 2 through 8, we see that two individuals, both John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, had been anticipated by the people of God for a very, very long time. Right at the very beginning of his gospel, Mark quotes from the Old Testament to show that his story is a continuation of the old, old story of the Old Testament. Speaking more specifically, Mark is showing that John the Baptist was the voice crying out in the wilderness that Isaiah was talking about hundreds of years earlier. Mark is showing that John the Baptist's ministry fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. Mark wants us to know that John the Baptist is the herald, the forerunner of the Lord who's going to come soon after him. Mark is also showing that John the Baptist fulfilled several other prophecies uh, that can be found in the Old Testament. In particular, Mark is showing that, that John fulfills the prophecy of Malachi, the very last of the Old Testament prophets. If you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn to the very, very end of the Old Testament. Open up to the book of Malachi, chapter 4. Now, before we read these verses, I want you to know that these are the very last words of prophecy that the Jewish people ever received. After they received these words of prophecy, there was a 400-year period where they received no prophecy from God. And 400 years after Malachi's prophecy, that's where we are. This is where John the Baptist enters the scene. And so let's read the last verses of the Old Testament together. Malachi chapter 4, verses uh, 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so these are the very last words of the Old Testament prophets. And they prophet, prophesy that the figure of Elijah will come back into history, and that'll come back into history uh, before the coming of the Lord. And so the Jewish people would have had these words of prophecy deep within their minds and deep within their hearts. They would have been waiting expectantly for the prophet Elijah to come into the world. And so Mark is showing us that the Elijah that the Jewish people had been waiting for is actually John. And we even see this in the way that Mark describes John the Baptist's clothing. Let's read verse 6 of Mark chapter 1. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And now if you flip back in your Bibles and read from the second book of Kings, chapter 1, verse 8, they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he says, it's Elijah the Tishbite. And so John the Baptist and Elijah actually have the same clothing, <laughs> which is a way that uh, Mark is trying to show 
that John, in fact, is Elijah returning, that John, in fact, is the Elijah who's coming before the Lord. And so in these few verses, Mark is showing us that the coming of John the Baptist signified the coming of the things that we had been anticipating. This was certainly true for the Jewish believers, but it's also true for us in 21st century PEI. If we look back into the prophecies that surround the coming of Elijah and the coming of the Lord, we'll see that the Lord comes with justice, the justice we've been, been anticipating. We'll see that the Lord comes with equity and with joy and with peace. We see that he renews the creation. We see that he establishes a political system, which we've been anticipating, right? And so if you actually read through the Old Testament prophecy, it's not only the Jews who find this stuff exciting, it's pretty much everybody who finds this stuff exciting. All of us yearn for these good things to come into the world. And so Mark is showing us that Jesus is the one that you've been anticipating. Second, these verses are characterized by preparation. The specific role of John the Baptist was to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus. John the Baptist's job was to get people ready for Jesus. And what's interesting is that John prepared the people for Jesus by urging them to confess their sins, receive his baptism of repentance, and pursue the forgiveness of their sins. And so it's significant to note that John the Baptist prepared the people by making them mindful of their sins and mindful of their need for forgiveness. This ministry of preparation that is given to John the Baptist gives us a hint about the kind of ministry that the Lord Jesus would have. John the Baptist's focus on sin, confession, and forgiveness suggests to us that Jesus' ministry would have to do with sin, confession, and forgiveness. John's ministry shows us that when Jesus arrives, repentance is going to be crucial. Now, I want to be clear about this word repentance because this word gets a bad rap. (laughs) People don't like this word. But repentance simply means turning away from that which is harmful and wrong, and turning towards that which is beneficial and good. Repentance is, in a sense, in a sense, a double move. It's a move away from that which is evil and a move towards that which is good. And so John is preparing the people for Jesus by urging them to turn away from that which is harmful so that when the time comes, they can turn towards Jesus, who is altogether good. And so this is John's ministry of preparation. Third, we see that these stories are characterized by proclamation. You could also say that these stories are characterized by preaching. In verses 4 through 8, we see that John the Baptist is proclaiming the need for repentance, but also proclaiming the greatness of the one who will come after him. John the Baptist is proclaiming the greatness of Jesus. We also see in the baptism of Jesus that God the Father, God himself, makes a proclamation about Jesus. In verse 11 of our text, we see that God proclaimed Jesus to be his son, and that God proclaimed that he was well-pleased with his son. So we have John the Baptist making proclamations. We have God himself making proclamations. And then in verse 14 and 15, we have Jesus himself making proclamations. We are told in these verses that Jesus went through the area of Galilee, proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand and that the people needed to repent and believe in the gospel. As we read through Mark's gospel and as we engage more deeply in the things of our Christian faith, we will come to see that the Christian religion is a preaching religion. It's a religion of proclamation. It's worth thinking about the fact that we as Christians are who we are because of what has been proclaimed to us through God's word. And so these verses are characterized by proclamation. Fourth, these verses are characterized by validation. In this instance, I'm thinking specifically about Jesus' baptism. 
In verses 9 through 11, we see Jesus validated by both God the Holy Spirit and God the Father. In this moment, we see the three persons of God, the three persons of the Trinity, coming together to magnify and to validate the Lord Jesus Christ. Both the Holy Spirit and God the Father showed that Jesus was our guy, that Jesus was the one that we had to focus on. They proclaimed this to the world. As far as the Gospel of Mark goes, Mark seems to have included this story of Jesus' baptism to communicate to us that Jesus is someone worth focusing on. Jesus is the God-ordained, the God-legitimated Savior of the world. It's also worth noting that the story of Jesus' temptation acts as a sort of validation of the Lord Jesus. The story about Jesus' temptation shows us that Jesus is a figure who has immense spiritual power. When I was thinking about the temptation of the Lord, I was thinking about uh, the Navy SEALs down in the United States. And the Navy SEALs have this intensive training process. And anybody who makes it through this intensive training process proves themselves to be someone of immense physical power, emotional power, and mental power. Well, in a way, when Jesus is in the desert, he's going through a spiritual boot camp. He's being threatened and attacked and tempted by Satan. The wild animals are all around him, which is dangerous. And so when Jesus emerges from the desert, he shows us that he is a person of immense spiritual power, a person who can fight with the devil himself and come out victorious. And so both in his baptism and in his temptation, Jesus is validated as someone who we ought to focus on. Fifth, this story is characterized by revelation. Once again, in verse 9 through 11, as we read about the baptism of Jesus, the full Godhead is revealed to us in all of his glory. Prior to the coming of Jesus into the world, nobody knew that God was a trinity. Right? The doctrine of the trinity was a mystery to every human being on earth. But when Jesus comes into the world, he reveals that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just a little while ago, I baptized little Jacob in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, I did that, one, because Jesus told me to, right at the very end of Matthew's Gospel. But two, I did it because Jesus is the one who reveals to me that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the characteristic of God. And so this, these stories are characterized by revelation, primarily in the sense that they reveal to us the doctrine of the Trinity, right? a doctrine which had been kept mysterious for ages past. Six, these verses are characterized by inauguration. Let's read verses 14 and 15 of our text. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. In these verses, we see that when Jesus came into the world, he inaugurated the kingdom of God. Now, this idea of the kingdom of God is of immense importance something that Mark focuses on, and it's something that uh, Matthew and Luke and their Gospels focus on as well. Unfortunately, the kingdom inaugurating aspect of, of Jesus' ministry is something that we often neglect. Most of us know about the moral aspect of Jesus' ministry. We know that he was a great moral teacher. And that's certainly true, but it's only part of the truth. Many of us also know about the what you might call the individual salvation aspect of Jesus's ministry, the sense that he came into the world to save sinners like you and me. Now that's certainly true. It's very true, but it's only part of the truth. Another part of the truth is that Jesus came into the world to build the kingdom of God. 
Jesus came into the world to extend the rule and reign of God throughout the creation, building up a people who would reign and have dominion with him as the sons and daughters of God. The beautiful truth is that Jesus Christ came into the world to inaugurate a new world order, to bring about a divine kingdom of peace, order, joy, and justice. You might not be like me, but I've always loved thinking about politics. I did my undergraduate degree in politics, and I used to joke that I, it wasn't controversial enough, so I went into religion. Uh, but, so I love politics, and I'm something of an instinctive uh, royalist. And so I've always loved the idea of the kingdom of God. I love the reality of the kingdom of God. I love that God is a king, and that it's he who rules over a perfect kingdom a kingdom which is perfectly governed according to the perfect law of love, a kingdom where every man and woman is a co-heir with Christ, a kingdom where every man and woman is an inheritor of of the kingdom, a kingdom where every man and woman is a citizen of heaven, a kingdom where all all are united under the blood-red banner of Christ, a kingdom where all are patriots with total loyalty, total allegiance to the king of heaven. I think it's so important that we understand the kingdom inaugurating aspect of Jesus' ministry. Seventh, these verses are characterized by exhortation. In verses 14 and 15, we see that Jesus' ministry, from the time that it was launched, was defined by exhortation. Exhortation simply means a strong, emphatic, and encouraging command. Exhortations are strong, they're statements, and they're intended to persuade and to convince and to encourage. It's worth noting that when Jesus is preaching, he seldom uses invitations. He often uses exhortations. Look at what Jesus says in verse 15 of our text. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus does not say the kingdom of God is at hand. Would you horribly mind considering repenting and believing? (laughs) Jesus is not asking a question. He's not offering an invitation. Jesus is giving a command. He's giving an exhortation. He's not asking people whether they would like to repent or believe. He's saying, repent, believe. If you look in the Greek, those words are present tense. Not believe in the future, believe in the past, believe now. They're imperative and they're active. Much of the modern church has been poisoned by the idea that Jesus came into into the world to simply give us an option. Much of the modern church has been poisoned by the idea that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a question question that we have to respond to as opposed to a statement of fact that we have to reckon with. Think about how firefighters speak to people when a house is on fire and burning down. When a firefighter rushes into a burning house to save the people who are at risk of being burned, he doesn't say, would you like to come with me? Or would you horribly mind jumping out of this window? Or I think you best go this way. No, when a firefighter rushes into a burning house, he says, go, move, jump, stop, (laughs) right? Like a firefighter being sent into a burning house, Jesus Christ was sent into the world to save people from the disaster of sinful living. Now, because Jesus was sent into the world as a savior, when he preaches, he preaches like a firefighter. He says, repent, believe, He's giving those short exhortations. He preaches as someone who's bursting into the fire of our lives and gives us those clear, simple commands that can save our souls. And so here we are. We have these five short stories which form the prologue of Mark's gospel. We have these five short stories that detail the lead-up and launch to Jesus' 
public ministry. And these five short stories are characterized by seven characteristics. Anticipation, preparation, proclamation, validation, revelation, inauguration, and exhortation. And so the question is now, what can we conclude about these five stories? What are the implications of Mark's prologue? Well, let me simply suggest to you that one of our conclusions, one of our implications, is that Mark shows us that Jesus Christ is the entry point into a world of wonders. Let me say it again. Jesus Christ is the entry point into a world of wonders. Think about what these stories tell us. We have seen that Jesus is the point at which all of our hopes are realized. Jesus is the point at which the hopes of the Jewish nation and of every other nation on earth are, are realized. He's the point at which our hopes are realized. We're also told that Jesus is the point of repentance. Jesus is the point at which we turn away from that which is harmful and wrong and turn towards that which is beneficial and good. We've seen that Jesus is the point at which the Trinity is revealed, and this perhaps is the most important thing of all. Jesus is the one who ushers us into the life of God and enables us to live in communion with the triune God. It's Jesus who reconciles us to the Father, and it's through Jesus that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Michael Reeves, in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, wrote, The triune God is the love behind all love, the life behind all life, the music behind all music, the beauty behind all beauty and the joy behind all joy. And so it's Jesus who ushers us into the life of God, who introduces us to this Trinity, who is love, life, music, beauty, and joy. Jesus is also the one who brings us the good news of the kingdom, who tells us that he has established and is establishing the rule and reign of God in the world, and ushers us to live in the midst of that kingdom. And then it's also Jesus who gives us the short, simple commands which teach us the way of salvation, right, which teach us how to come to God. And so in short, Jesus is our entry point into a world of wonders. Jesus is the point at which our hopes are realized, the point at which we repent, the point at which we come to know the God of heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the point at which we enter into the kingdom, into a life of repentance and faith. Mark is saying, this is your guy. Focus on him. Orient your lives towards him. Listen to him. Follow him. Is the most important thing that you'll ever do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have seen in your word that your son ought to be the focus and the center of our lives. Father, pry us away from those things which distract us. Pry us away from those other things which steal our allegiance away from the Lord Jesus. And teach us to follow him wholeheartedly with our whole lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.